Carl and Jacob. And good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Some of you haven't seen in quite a while. And it's, uh, as always, it's good to see you. Uh, Glad to see Miss Angie sitting back there. We miss you, but it's good to see you. Welcome to you. Some years ago, you may remember, I gave a sermon here. It was back in 2013. It was entitled Counterfeit Grace. Let me check. Anybody remember that? (laughs) One person. Hey, actually, one person does remember. But in that sermon, and I don't blame you. I don't remember. I don't even remember my own sermons back that far. I had to look it up online. But uh, back then, I gave that sermon is on entitled Counterfeit Grace, where I dealt with the contents of this book. Uh, the name of the book is Pure Grace by Clark Whitten, and it represents a movement, as it were, uh, the Pure Grace or Free Grace movement. And I want to read a little bit, just to refresh your memory, those of you who are here, or to introduce it to you for the first time for those of you who are not. I'm not going to repeat the sermon. I'm going to take it in a different direction. But I would like to uh, just go through a few points here so you will get the gist of this and understand what this pure grace movement is about. Now, the people who hold to this believe that this is a new reformation in the making. They look back at the reformers, Luther, Calvin, and others, and they said they, they, had, they did some good, but they didn't go far enough. They were good on justification, but not on sanctification and things like that. But anyway, let me read just a few lines here. I have a few, uh, oops, <laughs> maybe I'll be able to read a few lines here. I have some highlighted lines. It's uh, under this section, uh, it actually gives a summation of several points in the introductory, introductory material here before he gets into the main chapters. I'll just read a few lines here. It says, Christians are way too conscious of sin and way too unconscious of God's grace. Listen, Jesus did not die to modify your behavior. Really? So does that mean I can just go ahead and do whatever I want to do as far as behavior is concerned? Did not die to modify your behavior. Well, you know, he did rescue you from the consequences of your behavior, us from the consequences of our behavior. But somehow or other, that is... How does that contradict the idea that he also wants us to change our behavior? That that's a part of the equation. A second point, he says, Christians are not required to confess their sins to God in order to be forgiven. We already are forgiven. So, okay, so if you sin with impunity, I guess you don't have to confess your sins. I don't know what that scripture about confess your sins is all about, but in any way, in any case, this is what he, this is what the teaching says. Another point, he says, I believe that New Testament repentance is not the Holy Spirit convicting of sin, me feeling sorry, confessing the sin, asking for forgiveness, and committing to stop doing it. That's not repentance. Repentance is just believing on Jesus for salvation, and it's a done deal. That's what he's driving at here. And he goes on to say, contrary to popular religious opinion, God is not angry toward me and never will be. He says, my bad works don't move God any more than my good works move him. How many, this, is, this is actually in print and being sold in Christian bookstores. He simply isn't moved by works of any kind. Hmm. 
He says, and he's quoting a popular saying, My go do good, God is glad, do bad, God is mad. He said that's the M.O. of legalistic Christianity. I curry favor with God by good works and incur his displeasure by sinning. Honestly. What does that sound like? Islam, Buddhism, African fetish worship? It is utterly heathenish and deadly wrong. If you can't take it that far, at least agree it is foolish. Okay. So, I, you know, if, if all this is true, I just don't know what all these scriptures are about that admonish to good works and, and warn about the, the results of bad works. Don't get it. He says, sin for the Christian is a violation of friendship, relationship, not a violation of the law. Never mind, never mind 1 John 3, 4. Paul said that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He was referring to a little law leavening and whole lump of grace. He says it's much harder to sin against love than law. And then this is a good one here. This, this, this is a, the, the one that ought to get your attention. A response. I can, hear, I can sense the response already. God has the power to change my wanter. As that happens, I get to do what I want. You see where he's going with this, don't you? And then he goes on to say, toward the end of this uh, introduction, he says, Get ready, the ref this reformation will, will reveal the Father and his great love for his children. Evangelism will change. Fellowship between us will deepen and be much more meaningful. And aggressive love will sweep millions into the kingdom. The gospel will once again become truly good news. And so on along that line. So you get where he's going. And the fact is, the fact is, you may not even realize it, but some of the TV preachers that you may watch from time to time on Sunday morning uh, and, uh, and all through the week on uh, some of the Christian broadcasting networks. Uh, some of them actually have bought into this and you may not even realize it, but they're teaching it. So this is the so-called pure or free grace movement, but really at the end of the day what it is, it's nothing but an old form, a new form of a very old heresy, and that heresy is known as antinomianism. Uh, antinomia, anti meaning against, and nomos, the Greek word nomos, how many know what the word nomos means? Law. Anti-law, in other words. It's a form of antinomianism, and believe it or not, antinomianism was alive and well even within the apostolic church. So today, rather than go through and analyzing all these various points, what I'm going to do is turn to the scriptures, to a book of scripture, and we're going to read that book, yes, the whole book. We're going to read the whole book today, and I'll comment on it along the way too, so prepare to be here <laughs> for just a little while. Fortunately, it's the book of Jude, one chapter book. We're going to use the book of Jude as our text today, and this book is really about just that. The problem there was antinomianism. Some people have speculated as to what particular group was responsible for it. Uh, we don't know for sure. It could have been some incipient form of Gnosticism or something else. What we do know is Jude spells it out for us. He tells us what the real problem was, and we'll get to it as we read through this epistle. So turn with me to the book of Jude, and let's uh, take a look at it. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That tells us who he is. I'm not going to get into uh, the reasons for believing that this brother of James, these two, Jude and James, uh, were actually brothers of Jesus Christ, but uh, 
That's, that, I believe, to be is the strongest case. There are different opinions about who Jude was. The word, uh, the word is Judah. Uh, the Greek pronunciation is Judas. I guess they didn't want to call him Judas. Uh, so they used the word Jude. That's the English expression. So Jude and James were brothers. And the best explanation, I believe, that these were from the family from the, the, from, of Jesus Christ. Now, there are different opinions about that. Some believe that after Jesus Christ was born to Mary, that she and Joseph had other children. Others believe that Jude and James and the others were actually children of Joseph uh, before he married, and his first wife died, and then before he, that was before he married Mary. I, I don't know the answer to that. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. But I do believe that Jude and James were both from the family, that same family. So they had first-hand information. They actually saw their brother. They didn't believe in him until something very special happened. He rose from the dead. And that did tend to make a believer out of people, and it made a believer out of them. He says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, now this means that initially his intent was to write a doctrinal treatise. I wonder what it would have looked like. Might have supplied some information we don't have and ended a few controversies. You know, those questions that always come up, I don't know. But he, because of a problem, he says, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now it's interesting here that he considered, that this was probably written in uh, before A.D. 65. And here he considered that faith which delivered was already complete, a complete package. It was the faith. And that tells me that whatever the faith consisted of then was sufficient for salvation for anyone for all time, for once for all delivered to the saints. Now the reason I mention that is because some would argue that you have to accept this idea of the development of doctrine through the centuries. And that uh, deeper doctrinal truth came to light as the centuries unfolded. But it, this seems to suggest to me that the faith was complete then and there, and if you believe the same things the apostles believed, that's sufficient. He says in verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. This refers to previously written predictions about the fate of the ungodly. It's not talking about uh, Calvinistic-style predestination. It doesn't mean that, they were, that God uh, selected them and marked them out personally, uh, before the foundation of the world so that they would suffer this kind of condemnation. No, uh, what he's referring to here, this refers to the previous, look through the Psalms, look through the prophets, and you will see exactly what, how God marks out those who practice such things, wickedness, for condemnation. He says, ungodly men. Now, here's, here, come, here we come to the main problem. The main problem is, he said, he said, Jude continues, who turn, or as the English Standard Version says, who pervert the grace of our God, like this book does, I would, I would say, who pervert or turn the grace of our God into lewdness, or as the ESV says, sensuality. 
and deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This latter phrase, I believe, is connected to the first. In other words, by turning the grace of God into sensuality, in other words, using the grace of God as an excuse for ungodly behavior, you thereby deny God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. I believe that's what he's saying here. He's not talking about two separate heresies, but one. One major problem. So perverting grace by making it into excuse for sinful behavior is a denial of the Father and the Son. And this was a form, obviously, of antinomianism. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus refers to that as well. You remember verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Antinomianism, once again. You know, and when I read statements like that and I read a book like this, I'm thinking, hey, where in the world are these, how in the world do they come to these conclusions? Continuing in the book of, of uh, Jude, now he goes, to, goes on to uh, provide three examples of apostasy and the, and the sad results of it. Three examples. You're going you're gonna to see it's interesting how he arranges his material. Three examples, some commentary, three more examples, five metaphors. He has all of these examples and metaphors here. And even a couple of quotes from apocryphal literature, and I'll comment on that when we get to it. He says, continuing in verse 8, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that, and here comes example number one, the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It's example number one. And what do you have here? A people who had experienced the goodness of God, the grace of God, and yet in the wilderness, what did they do? They turned to ungodliness, and the result was uh, a very bad one. Here comes example number two. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, some people think this refers to the sons of God who married the daughters of men back in Genesis chapter 6. I'll just, I'm not going to go into that. I'll just comment on it and say I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's talking about. Uh, there are some problems, some very serious problems uh, with that particular interpretation. Uh, I think it refers to the, the angels who followed Satan in his rebellion. They abandoned their God-ordained areas of service. So here again, you have, you have beings who are in one area, one position, and it's one that is favorable with God, and then they move to a different one, one has, is in disfavor. You see, you see the, uh, the same thing being sh uh, shown here. And then here comes example number three. As Sodom and G Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner to these... Now, who is these? I think the these here is referring back to the apostates who were troubling the people Jude is writing to. It's not referring back to the angels who sinned, the angels who departed from their first estate, 
but it's referring to the apostates. The reason, the reason some people seize upon this and say, no, he's referring to those angels is because it says, having given themselves over to sexual immorality. And so we see, it's, it's, uh, that means those angels that he's talking to were, must have been those sons of God in uh, Genesis 6. But no, the, the these here, and the reason I think the these, the word these refers back to the apostates, is because he uses the same word over and over again in reference to them. For example, in verse 8, likewise also these dreamers. And then you find it again in verse, in verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And then you find it again in uh, verse 12 and, and, and also in verse 16. We'll read those as we get down to them. But he goes on to say, well, well, first of all, he, let's continue on. He says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a singular manner as these, uh, having given themselves over to sexual immorality. Notice, given themselves over to. There must have been a time when Sodom did not have the kind of depravity we find in it uh, in the days of Abraham. So they gave themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You want to know something about eternal fire and what that means? Well, here's a good example. Uh, the fire that destroyed Sodom was a fire that led to total annihilation. It's not still burning today. It's eternal, it's forever, in the sense that it, uh, it burns everything, that uh, it, it burns until everything is consumed that it was designed to consume. So there you have an example of eternal fire, one of your proof texts for people who want to tell you that there is an everlasting hellfire where people suffer forever and ever. So all these examples are of groups that descent or descend into some form of depravity. All three examples. And Jude, uh, Jude uses these to alert the Christians he's writing to to the fact that this same fall from grace or from desirable to undesirable position in the eyes of God can happen to them. What would be the point of writing it if he thought it couldn't happen? So this is a warning. It's a, the fact that these apostate teachers had come along and some people apparently were being influenced and he wants to write and warn them about the devastating results of following them. He goes on. Continues, says, likewise also these dreamers. Why would you call them dreamers? Well, probably, this probably means that they claim to have received divine revelation. You ever hear anybody today who claims to have received divine revelation? They start telling you what God told me. You know, God told me that such and such will happen by such and such a date. When it doesn't happen, guess what? Well, it was not absolute, you know. It's just <laughs> so God wasn't very clear. Is that what we're saying? But no, people do today claim to receive divine revelations, and they actually convince people that they're, they really did. Now, he goes on to describe their characteristics. Number one characteristic says they defile the flesh. He said, likewise, also these dreamers, they defile the flesh. That's number one. Number two, reject authority, meaning what? I think some people have understood this to mean civil authorities, but I think it's talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the authority they reject. And three, speak evil of dignitaries, or as some modern translations, including the English Standard Version, says, blaspheme the glorious ones. What's that about? 
probably referring to angelic authorities. I'm going to have some more special music up here, it looks like. <laughs> it's probably re referring to the angelic authorities and may well be referring to those who were previously glorious ones before their fall into sin. Talking about, in other words, demons. So what is this? what would this mean? Can you hear it? We're going to twist the old devil's tail tonight. <laughs> Ever heard that before? Something like that? Come out, Satan. We're going to get, we're going to trample upon the demon realm tonight. Yeah, you hear that sort of thing on TV, and I, I think this is probably what was going on. This was a claim of power, of authority, and it was their own claim of themselves, inherit within themselves. And uh, here it goes on to give an example. Jude gives us an example uh, to illustrate that. He says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now think about this. Now, by the way, he's quoting from an apocryphal book, The Assumption of Moses. And I could stand here and say, Now why isn't that in the Bible? I think them Catholics took it out. Some people have argued like that, but no. No, just the fact that he is citing something from an apocryphal book does not, does not mean that he recognized it as canonical. He's making a point by using something from that source. It's not a, it's not a part, it doesn't mean that he believes it's part of the canon of Scripture. But uh, here's the point that he's making. Uh, notice that Michael the archangel, now what do we read about Michael the archangel in scripture? We can read in the book of Daniel that he was one of the chief princes. He was Israel's prince. And here he's contending with the devil about the body of Moses. He could have well said, listen, who do you think you're dealing with here, Satan? I'm Michael, the prince of Israel. But no, what he says is, did he refer to himself, his own authority, his own power? No, he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. You see, these apostates apparently were referring to their own authority, and by their own authority were claiming some kind of power over the spirit realm. Also, this contrasts the temporal, uh, the, uh, I should say the temperate speech of Michael with the rash speech of the apostates. I think that's what's really going on here. It's not that Michael had so much respect for Satan that he just wouldn't speak, you know, speak to him in, in, in a disrespectful way. Uh, after all, saying the Lord rebuke you is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily connote a great deal of respect, does it? But no, the point is Michael looked to God as the source of authority that he exercised. And these apostates were looking to their own. They gloated in their own authority. Verse 10, But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. And now here come three. He's about to give us three more examples. So we get a good picture of what these people are like. For they have gone in, and here's the first example, the way of Cain, have run greedily in, example number two, the error of Balaam for profit, 
and perished in the, number three, rebellion of Korah. Now you can go back, we won't take the time to do it, but you can go back and read about all of those. And the conclusion you come to is simply that Cain was jealous of Abel, whose offering was approved and his was not. And what happened? Well, he killed him. He let, he let that resentment and that jealousy override his, uh, uh, what should have been his better judgment. And then Balaam was a, you might say, a diviner for, how, for hire. You know, somebody who was known to be able to pronounce a curse upon a people, and apparently uh, it really came to pass, or people believed it came to pass. And so Balak, king of the Moabites, sent for Balaam to pronounce a curse upon Israel. You know how that worked out. But the point here is these are people who do what they do for money. For the right amount, Balaam would put a curse on your enemies. And Korah, with his men, rose up against the legitimate authorities, who were Moses and Aaron. God appointed them. Korah rose up against them. And apparently then the, the apostates that Jude speaks of here claimed either apostolic authority or may have uh, denounced legitimate apostles and uh, evangelists. Why? For their own, in order to bolster themselves, to build up themselves in the eyes of the people. Now, apparently, these were folks that came along as itinerant preachers, came into the various house churches or congregations, wherever they met, and presented themselves as such, perhaps presented themselves as apostles or representatives of apostles, and then they began to gloat about their own authority, and they began to teach this doctrine of antinomianism, and this is Jude's concern. This is why Jude wrote this brief letter. Now, Jude continues his description of the apostates by supplying five metaphors. So we had three examples followed by three other examples, total of six examples, now five metaphors. So you're going to have a complete picture of what these people were like, even though you can't identify them in history, for sure. It says, these are, metaphor number one, spots in your love feast. Now the word spots is translated uh, uh, blemishes in the, in, uh, the English Standard Version and other new, new uh, modern English translations. And this, the Greek word usually means rocks or hidden reefs. Now think about that. Hidden reefs, that's the same word normally used to describe hidden reefs. It's a, it's a mariner's worst nightmare. You're sailing along in what appears to be smooth sea, and all of a sudden you hit a reef, a hidden reef, one you don't know is there. Normally they knew where these things were. And you hit one, and guess what happens? You, you sink. You destroy your boat. So they were, this is, this is the point. This is the point. They're, there they are with you in your love feast, and yet what are they doing? They're bringing destruction your way. They're hidden reefs. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Now, metaphor number two. They're clouds without water, carried about by the winds. What do, what do waterless clouds do? They promise rain. Now, oh, oh, finally, look at the clouds. It's going to rain when you need rain. And then what happens? They just pass right on over. Promises, but no rain. And similarly, they, these apostates promise, make promises, but then do not produce they fail to produce what is promised. In metaphor number three, late autumn trees without fruit. 
twice dead. It's, it's bad enough if you have the fruit tree out there that doesn't produce fruit. It's no good, is it? It's not of any use to it. Yet this is a this this one. It says is twice dead, pulled up by the roots. That's a really that's a really worthless tree, isn't it? Twice dead, pulled up by the roots. They produce no fruit of righteousness, nothing of any value. Metaphor number four, raging, or the, as the ESV says, wild, and other translations say wild, waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. In other words, always restless and busy and always causing problems. I think uh, that's, that's been a reality in uh, Christian history uh, down through the ages. You always have these. And now metaphor number five, and I believe this one is misunderstood quite often. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about these human apostates. And here we have a list of metaphors to describe them. Uh, this is not talking about spirit beings, but human apostates. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now here, I don't know if Jude spent some time out on the water. He seems to... I have some fascination with the water and with the, the using these mariner's terms. Because just think about this. If you're out there at sea and you're a mariner, you know, you're, you want to you go from point A to point B crossing a large body of water, uh, how do you do that? You don't, you don't contact the Coast Guard. If not in those days, you didn't. Uh, you had to understand something about the stars, didn't you? You navigated by the stars. What if those stars started wandering on you? You're lost. You're lost. And so that's the point here. These people, like the hidden reefs, this is just another mariner's nightmare, they were untrustworthy and useless. They will lead you astray if you try to follow them. And he goes on to say, verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Now once again, we're back into an apocryphal text. This is from First Enoch, and it's quoted almost verbatim. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, now before we read it again, I'd like to comment on Jude's use of apocryphal text. Again, does not, does not necessarily mean that he endorsed them as canonical scripture. Doesn't mean that. You know, I have quoted from, from many books over the years. Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, works of various scholars. That doesn't mean I endorse everything in those works. I just use them uh, for the things I do agree with and the truth that is presented there in order to illustrate and to support the points that I'm making. And so it is with Jude when he quotes from the Assumption of Moses and from uh, the book of First Enoch. But this is almost a verbatim quote from First Enoch. It says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly. I want you to notice how many times he uses this word. And this is one of the reasons he, he uses this quotation because it does emphasize the nature of the people he's writing about. Saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Was there some ungodliness going on here? You see, that's his main point. He's using this to illustrate, to explain, to describe these people. So do we know what Jude thought about them? 
I think we do. He goes on talking about them. He gives further description, says these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. You know, that's uh, all the previous metaphors and examples uh, is, say just that. That's just a summary of all these things in the metaphors and examples he's used thus far. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. He mentions the last time there. He, he perceived that he was living in the last time, meaning the latter part of history from the time of Christ on to the end of the age. If they were living in the, the end time, if they were living in the last days, then I would say it's safe to say that we are too because we're maybe all, almost a couple thousand years after the time Jude wrote. So uh, this certainly would apply to us and certainly would be a warning, an admonition to us as well as it was to the people in that day. And as you can see, as you look around the world of professing Christianity, you see all kinds of things like this. These, these things, they sound good. They sound very godly. They say, wow, this is great. Uh, here's James Robison. You remember, you know James Robison, uh, very famous evangelical. He says, Clark Whitten understands grace, a foreign concept among many believers today. I mean, here he gives his endorsement to this. Once we grasp the true meaning of grace, we'll live not as orphans, but as children of God. That sounds great. Sounds wonderful. And yet, when you analyze it, you see it is very unscriptural. It's another form of the same thing we see described in the book of Jude and elsewhere in the New Testament. He goes on to say, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's opposite from the way the apostates were presenting themselves. They weren't praying in the Holy Spirit. They were gloating about their own power. But you, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. There's some ambiguity in this text, and uh, as you look at it in the Greek, you realize it can refer to two groups of people or maybe to three, where it's, not, it's just not clear. But what is clear is that this represents different pastoral strategies for dealing with different people. Some can be helped by gentle counsel. Others require something else. Other forms of help, they require additional help in the process of pulling them out of the fire. So that, but his point here is pulling them out of the fire. That means rescuing them from this, uh, the influence of the apostates that would cause them to slip into the sinful behavior or as he says, the ungodliness that these men were advocating. Finally, in closing, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever.